Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, one of the, the funny things I, I often reflect on when, when you look at the lives of these geniuses and great innovators is that you probably wouldn't actually want to hang out with them. <laughs> they actually, they, they're, they're kind of brilliant to observe from afar, but if they were actually in a room with you, it'd probably be intensely disturbed. It, it might not even be fun to be them, right? Right. Like it's, a, it's a difficult life that they lead. Yeah. Uh, and they're not all super friendly, right? That's just, and they're, they often don't care that much about what you think, so they're not going to work that hard at making you feel comfortable or, or liked, probably. I always have this memory of, 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 of seeing one of my musical heroes, Deborah Harry, in a bar in New York. And I went up to her and to say hello and how much I loved the music. She just looked at me and told me exactly where to go. <laughs> really? <laughs> and I thought, that's it, you know, good for you. That's like the best punk thing you could be the, told by Deborah punk, Harry. Punk to the end. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm uh, having a cup of coffee with uh, Melissa Schilling, who is a professor at NYU Stern and the author of a brilliant book, uh, which is called Quirky. And you have, you're helping with the subtitle. Yes, The Remarkable Story of the Traits, Foibles, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Changed the World. There's almost no room on the cover uh, for that subtitle. I know, I know. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but, I, but it is a great book and you have to read it. Uh, but we are going to talk about genius and innovators and, and lots of other good stuff, aren't we? I hope so. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you spent a lot, really looked at the lives of eight as well as other uh, not just innovators, but what you called uh, serial in- innovators. Right, right. People who had had multiple <clears throat> breakthrough innovations that other people in the world had identified as being really, really important. People who basically innovated for most of their lives. So right. not the one-hit wonders, not the people who were in the right time, right place, but people for whom innovation was their life's blood. And and one of the things, you know, from when we were talking before, you, you thought was quite remarkable is that uh, there had been certain characteristics or traits of these people that had been observed, but it was only when you looked at all of them together that you noticed just how many similarities there were, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was really surprising how many of the things that are in the book now that were incredibly common across these people that I hadn't known about and hadn't been looking for when I started the book. And, you know, I knew the research on innovation pretty well. And I knew the research on psychology and, uh, and creativity pretty well because that's my space that I do work in. Um, you know, so I, I thought I, I, I thought I kind of knew what I would find, uh, and it ended up being very surprising because some of the things that come out not only come out so clearly, but haven't been talked about before. Like sleeplessness. Like sleeplessness <laughs> is a great one. Right. Yeah. So, and in fact, I wouldn't have noticed the sleeplessness had it not been for Nikola Tesla. Right. So Nikola Tesla, of all the people I looked at, was perhaps the most genius and also the most weird and and a little broken. Like really super fascinating person. Uh, that's maybe one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. But one that he had a lot of traits that were so extreme that you couldn't miss them. And once you saw them in Tesla, you started to look at the other people and you realized, oh my God, that person has that too. But nobody had ever noticed before because it wasn't as extreme in the other people. So t- Tesla famously slept, uh, I think he rode like maybe two hours a night. If at all. Right? If at all. Two hours when he slept at all. Sometimes he didn't sleep at all. He tended to roam the city at night feeding pigeons. Right. So often worked through the night as well. So there's a, there's a very fine line between genius and mania. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think... I would say the majority of the people I looked at had some sign somewhere of some sort of dopamine irregularity, like a little bit of mania or a little bit of obsessive compulsive disorder. And both of those things are related to dopamine. Hmm. Uh, 
Nikola Tesla very clearly would have been diagnosed with mania and obsessive compulsive disorder if he lived in our time. Like he couldn't be around women who wore pearls because he couldn't stand spherical objects. He had to wash his hands all the time and always wore gloves. He would calculate the cubic root of the food on his plate. And if it wasn't perfectly divisible into a cubic root, he wouldn't eat it. Like he was a very, he had lots of signs of obsessive compulsive yeah. disorder. But he also had this incredible sensitivity to stimuli like sunlight would burn his eyes and he would keep the shades drawn at all hours because if even a single ray of light would come in he said it would just sear his mind and a fly would land on a table and the thud of a fly landing on a table would hurt his ears Howard Hughes had similar things I remember oh did he really yeah he'd locked himself in a room and he he wouldn't come out just because he'd find there was too much sensory overload yeah now that's also something that people talk about for people who are a little bit on the spectrum so you know one of the things that dopamine does is it has this function that's called uh, latent inhibition and it basically helps you to screen out stuff you don't need to pay attention to. So it reduces latent inhibition. So when dopamine is elevated, you have less latent inhibition and so you can't screen out stuff. So all this stimulus that's around you, like the sound of of a bird outside or a car, is distracting for you. Now a little bit of that is good for creativity because it means you're attending to things that other people aren't attending to and you have this defocused attention that is great for mixing and matching ideas. But too much of that and it starts to look like schizophrenia. Right. This is this is something I really found intriguing. You know, when you look uh, through the lives of these people, is is it's not just some of the uh, I would say the useful characteristics of hard work and dedication and unique insights, but the kind of mechanisms and structures within their mind, both biological or you know constructed, that allowed them to be better problem solvers. Yeah. So oh, yeah. you know, if dopamine was giving them more input, they also had fantastic memories. Right, right. And, 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 and this, this, this sort of allowed them to, you know, hold problems in their mind in a very different way. Right. I mean, I actually think this is one of the biggest insights of doing this book is that, you know, there's a line of research that talks about dopamine irregularity in schizophrenia. Hmm. There's a line of research that shows that families that produce creative geniuses also produce a disproportionate number of schizophrenics, so genetically there's been some implication that there might be a link. There's a line of research showing that dopamine is implicated in mania. There's a line of research showing that mania and literary genius go together. (laughs) And there's also a line of research, these are all separate, distinct, non-connected lines of research looking at how dopamine facilitates working memory and executive control. But when you look at them all together, you say, oh my God, now I understand why intelligence and genius and madness all go together. Because it's real, really all relying on the same underlying neurotransmitters and a little bit of dysregulation in dopamine or norepinephrine or something like that can have myriad effects in these systems. These are all like overclocked computers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the importance of memory? So when you have great working memory, it means you're keeping more things live in your mind for manipulation at a time. Right. You know, so traditionally we thought that there was this thing called the magic number seven. We thought people could basically, on average, keep seven things live in their memory. Now it depends on whether they're numbers or words or com- complicated constructs or simple constructs. And you can also learn to chunk them, right? So instead of remembering one nine four seven, you might remember nineteen forty seven. But there's this idea that people are constrained in how much you can keep active. 
Well, when you can keep a whole lot more active, it unleashes an enormous amount of cognitive processing that's just not available to other people. So someone like uh, Elon Musk, he's got really great executive control and working memory at, to the point where he has photographic memory. Right. So he can do calculus and physics computations in his head. And Nikola Tesla, he was like a computer-aided design machine. He could turn objects in his mind. Yeah, you? he could build them, develop them, test them, turn them around, refine them, fix them. And then when he was completely done designing it strictly in his mind, he would put it into physical form and it would be perfect the first time. Like, unbelievable. Right. And, and, and this, this is something that I found really interesting because you actually essentially describe a lot of these cognitive insights as a kind of a, almost a, a form of network processing. Yeah. And it was that, that having that memory was the ability to go further down those network processes. Right. Looking for a solution uh, and find often very co contradictory ideas and facts and combine them in ways that right. other people just never get far down that tree of analysis. Exactly. I do a lot of work actually on knowledge as a network process. Right. So basically, knowledge is fundamentally a network structure because ideas or information they don't have any meaning until they're connected to something. Like if you, the only thing you, in the world you knew was tail, it has absolutely no meaning. It's when tail is connected to dog and to wag and happy that the that tail starts to take on meaning, right? right? So the process of learning is the process of forming a network between ideas that such such that they start to form constructs and concepts and relationships, and networks have paths through them right? Social networks have paths through them. Cognitive networks have paths through them. Someone who is able to go further down a path quicker is going to get to someplace in that network that other people don't. And so the idea they come up with may seem very strange and random. In fact, there's a researcher named Simonton who thinks it's all random. I don't actually think it's random. I think some people are going further uh, than other people. But, but there's also a good start moment as well, you know, because I mean, even the example of a dog, a dog is not just a a tail and a paw and a you know and a wet tongue it's uh there's sort of a something that links all of it together that you can't it's even hard to teach a computer you know like right. what all those pieces are the context of it and genius people have sort of a deeper ability to see the context of things as well well probably only because they're able to build bigger networks right denser networks faster you know a lot of the people that uh in, in my book at least, are they're omnivorous, voracious readers. They're interested in everything. They're studying and they're studying deeply. And so they're building really large, complicated, diverse cognitive networks mm. that's going to give them a different lens on a problem than someone without that network would have. I tell you why I'm really fascinated this because we're at a time where we're debating the implications of automation and artificial mm. intelligence and where human beings add value relative to machines that can be trained on lots of data. What what you're talking about suggests that there is, you know, there is there's an element that human beings are still much better at machines, which is going down unexpected paths, you know, associating knowledge that you know a machine that's trained on one particular data just just wouldn't be able to see those associations or networks. Yeah, I don't know though. I think that a, I think you could train a machine to have if you fed it enough random data. Right? Yeah, you could you could or you could tell it to seek randomness, right? You could you could have a. In fact, when we design simulations, one of the first thing we do is we put in a certain amount of stochastic error into it so that we can see what happens with the what we would call mutation in the model. So and humans, uh, machines are going to be much better at keeping that whole cognitive network live. <laughs> and being able to search it way faster than we can. Now, there may be something we do 
that's better about forgetting. We may be really good at forgetting. Forgetting may turn out to be really valuable because it's part of what enables us to attend to certain things and not to other things. Right, which allows you to see the wood for the trees. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not necessarily great news for the future of genius. You've kind of undone your own thesis well, in the side. So. No, it's, I mean, it's not incongruent with my thesis. We, we just don't have a computer like that yet. Right. Yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this also because I do learning simulations. Yeah. And if you were, you know, we don't know how to design a, a computer right now to think like a person. And we have this notion that there's this magical thing called consciousness that people have, right? But I think we can program a computer to think like a paramecium. And I suspect that a paramecium is just on a continuum along which humans lie somewhere and paramecium's lie somewhere. Right. So if you train a computer to learn the way any kind of organism could learn by encountering an object and having an experience and getting a reward or not getting reward. And transferring those experiences to other experiences. Exactly. Right. You could have a machine that learns to be a lot like a person and what we would call consciousness might not be a binary thing. It right. might just be a point where it learns enough like us that we say, hey, that looks like us. But in the near future, at least, if you want to define yourself against some of these technologies of automation, um, what does it take to be more like a genius? Okay, uh, there's a couple of really cool things you can do right away. First one, start cultivating some really ambitious idealistic goals. Because right. the beauty of an idealistic goal is something you think is intrinsically important and noble and valuable beyond yourself, like valuable for humanity or maybe valuable for the environment or whatever it is that inspires you. That's not only incredibly motivating, and it's really motivating, right? It's a powerful intrinsic motivator. That'll make, an idealistic goal will make people work harder and longer uh, you know, sometimes even sacrificing comfort or their health or food or family. You know, people will work very hard. But it's also, um, it helps you to think bigger, right? So if, you, if your idealistic goal is to colonize Mars, you've got to take on some pretty big problems. You're not looking at problems like, what are the problems I can solve? No. You're thinking, what are the problems I have to solve to get to Mars? And that, and that is unusual about Elon Musk and his companies. They're not really driven by quarterly profit. Not at all. Um, you know, or even returns Much to, to the chagrin of the stock market. Well, yes, yeah. but, but, but it, there's almost zero chance he could have motivated others, also, even himself, if he was just right. trying to make money. Yeah, so that's another advantage of an idealistic goal, is that if you have an idealistic goal that other people find meaningful, you can rally more support. Right? Like a lot of people are holding Tesla stock because they believe in the mission. Right? A lot of people are cheering him on because they believe in the mission. So that's a valuable thing about an idealistic goal. Another thing that uh, I had never heard anyone write about before but came through very clearly with the innovators is that an idealistic goal provides a form of ego defense, meaning that you can take a lot of abuse if you feel like you're working for God or you're working for humankind. Like you don't, it doesn't de deter you to be criticized or to experience failure, to have people judge you harshly if you think what you're working on is more important. And this is something Einstein definitely demonstrated. I mean, yeah. he really had the cards stacked against him when he first started. Oh, completely. As did Marie Curie. They were yeah. both really, really discriminated against. And they just put their heads down and kept working and decided they didn't really care what other people thought. Mm. Another thing you can, uh, another trait which is, it's like a superpower actually and you can cultivate it and we should be teaching everybody how to cultivate it We should be incorporating this into our parenting is self-efficacy, right? So self-efficacy is a particular kind of confidence and it's important to say that because I think if you met Marie Curie You might not come away going. Oh, she's really confident. 
I'm, I'm not sure she would have come across like that. But she had really high self-efficacy. They all did. And self-efficacy is when you have intense faith in your ability to overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. And when you have that faith, you'll take on more projects, you'll take on bigger projects, and you'll stick with them longer, even if things look like they're going wrong. Because you have faith, you're like, I'll figure it out. I'll overcome this obstacle. I'll achieve my goal. So self-efficacy is hugely powerful. And you know, and Tesla had so much of it that it looked like, again, mania, like hubris. So sometimes that line between self-efficacy and hubris is just whether or not you get it done, right? I mean, look at, look at Musk. If he had not gotten a reusable rocket, we would think he was totally hubristic yeah. to say he's going to colonize Mars. And, and NASA would never have given him the contract. Absolutely not. But the fact that he did the impossible, he did something that the whole space industry said was impossible, made everyone step back and say, okay, not going not gonna to bet against this guy again, <laughs> right? Especially when he managed to teach himself rockets from a couple of... From a couple of books. Foreign yes. textbooks. It's amazing. <laughs> now, so, so here's the really cool part. You can cultivate self-efficacy in yourself and in others. Uh, one of the most powerful ways is what we call early wins. So, you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak talked about how they had created this thing called a blue box, which is a way to hack the phone system. Yeah, and they did using this, tones and frequencies. Yes, right? exactly. And they did it when they were really young. And the fact that they were able to do it and sell a few just turned a light bulb on in their heads. They suddenly realized, hey, we can do stuff. And Steve Jobs, I have this great quote where Steve Jobs says, if it hadn't been for the blue boxes, there would have been no Apple. I'm 100% sure of that, right? The blue boxes taught them what they could do. So early wins. That means if you see someone struggling a little bit at something, you know, our instinct sometimes is to rush in and help because that's social bonding, right? That's nurturing. We want to signal that we're there for people, right? But we're undermining their chance to develop self-efficacy. So sometimes the best thing you can do is say, hey, you got this. I have faith in you. You're going to figure it out. And that was a real light bulb moment for me with my kids, like letting them struggle through things and figuring it out and just showing them that I have faith they can do it. Super important. Because the process is actually more important than the outcome. Yeah, well, and here's the, here's the other thing. So I started wondering a lot, because a lot of people talk about uh, self-efficacy coming from early wins, but I hadn't seen very many people talking about, but what if you fail? Yeah. <laughs> is it a 50-50 proposition? Like if, if, a task, if there's a task where there's a 50% likelihood that you'll fail, does an early failure undermine your self-efficacy? And here's an interesting little twist that comes from human nature, uh, sort of biased, you know, human nature is that human beings on average have an attribution bias. I'm sorry, I'm using like, you know, big psychology words, but such that they tend to own their successes and take credit for them and they tend to externalize their failures. Not always, but on average. So on average, you will take credit for the things you succeed at and you will take less credit for the things <laughs> you fail at, which means that if there's a 50-50 shot, someone's gonna win or, or gonna win or fail, roll those dice because, because they'll get the, the self-efficacy advantage from the early win and on average, they won't get the same degree of undermining of self-efficacy from the failure. Right, well, so a bit of self-delusion is always helpful. Self-delusion, oh, and there's one uh, other way to build self-efficacy. Can I tell you about the other yes, way? Yes, please. So the other way is easier. The other thing is hero stories. And uh, again, I hadn't heard anyone write about this before, and I would love to now do some serious empirical research on it, but it, you can see how it works. Uh, and Bandura talked a lot about this. He was the famous psychologist who kind of really did most of the early work on self-efficacy. But humans are wired for vicarious learning. Right? We're social creatures, and we learn what we can do or what we can't do by watching 
other humans. Right, this right? sort of mirror neuron effect. It's, I mean, and it's crucial because otherwise, you know, you would have to eat the poison berry to discover that it kills you, mm. right? And instead, I can just, we can all know, oh, that person ate the poison berry, don't eat that berry, right? Social animals do this, birds do this, right? Any social animal exchanges this learning, and we're wired for it, right? So what that means is you can take hero stories, like stories about Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Dean Kamen. You know, Dean Kamen and Steve Jobs are great hero stories because neither one of them uh, graduated from college. And, and look at how they overcame obstacles to achieve their goals. And when you read those stories, you internalize some part of that and think, I can do that too. Yeah. It teaches you something about yourself. Which is also why we're obsessed with Star Wars and, and all. <laughs> you know, but, but but I mean, you're right. Like I think as a as a race, the kind of the the hero's journey, that the idea of overcoming obstacles, and yeah. there's something about the stories that you've written about that appeals to our sense of the, uh, you know, the the lone adventurer overcoming obstacles and threshold guardians. Yeah, and it's probably why Iron Man is probably more inspiring than Superman because Iron Man is just a guy who yeah. built a great suit. Yeah. Whereas Superman, he's a little harder to we identify. We all know who Iron Man was based on. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I guess when you look at some of these stories though, and we'll come back to this as well, this idea of that these are often lone individuals who are not particularly socialized. Uh, their solitude and isolation, their fortress of solitude gives them unique insights often, the ability to separate themselves from the world. If you're an organization or a company, and what do you do with this? Because yeah. these are the generally the people that do the worst in companies. Yeah. They're the people who are terrible at politics. Uh, they struggle to get funding because people just generally are intimidated or don't like them. They yeah. don't play well with teams. Yeah. So I think there's two big lessons there. The first one is there are these people who are sort of naturally loners or don't fit in or are weird. And finding ways to enable them to, to belong and feel accepted and be successful and get access to resources is hugely important. Um, you know, in the story of Steve Jobs applying at Atari and his, with his dirty feet and his unwashed hair and, you know, basically showing up in the lobby and saying, I'm not leaving until you give me a job. And the fact that they gave him a job. But only at night because he smelled oh, so bad. Wait, only at night because he smelled really <laughs> bad and he was also kind of abrasive. Yeah. You know, that is an incredible testimony to a company finding a way to make room for someone who's a little weird and maybe makes other people even uncomfortable. Mm. But there's a second thing we can learn, which is probably even more important because I think number-wise it's going to account for more people, and that is that everybody needs time alone. And if you want really breakthrough ideas, the last thing in the world you want to do is take five people and put them in a room and say, do some brainstorming and come up with an idea. There's so many problems with that. Yeah. The, the first problem is that when you put people together in a room, they often don't share their weirdest stuff because they're afraid of being judged, right? They'll, they'll tend to share the things they think you'll buy into. So they all end up surfacing the one thing that you all kind of agreed on, which is the mediocre compromise, right? They also uh, have what's called production blocking, which means that when I'm talking, you're not talking. And you're not even really thinking about the things that you would be thinking about if I would just shut up, right? I'm blocking you from following your own ideas in your own cognitive network. So again, you lose tons of ideas that way. And then the third piece, which uh, you know you can really learn just from watching Steve Jobs, is that most people in a group are going to get uncomfortable with a level of with, with conflict, and so they start making concessions. So if I put out a really weird idea, like let's colonize Mars, and you disagree, and you're like, "That's stupid. That's so expensive. You know, we can't do that." 
I might come back with, okay, okay, well, wait, let's just like send a plant to Mars and see right. how that plant does. I'm immediately making concessions. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll colonize New Jersey. Yeah, we'll colonize New Jersey. It's a lot like Mars. So we're shaving off all the really cool corners off of our big shiny idea until we've got this dull little blob in the middle that we can agree on. So that's a problem. Oh, and then there's one more piece there that is super important. It's so natural to say, come up with an idea. But implicit in that is pick one, agree on something. Right. And yet if if you don't you, necessarily have enough information yet to really... No, and picking one is, could mean you're losing the best three because the one you can agree on is not going to be the most unusual one. You, want, you might want to say, generate lots of ideas and we can split up the team and pursue multiple ideas. Don't be afraid to disagree. And yet collaboration and input from others was also a big part of the stories of the people you profiled. But what you're suggesting is that we need to find a balance between sort yeah. of alone insight and collaborative networked well, there's resources. A, there's a staging. I mean, if you want breakthrough <clears throat> ideas, I really think you need to start by generating lots of novelty and letting people work alone in pursuing really unusual ideas. Albert Einstein talked about this at length. He's like, you know, fundamentally, an idea happens in the mind of an individual. There's no getting around that. Hmm. You might refine the idea or merge some ideas with someone, but the ideation proce process occurs in the head of a human being. Right. Well, as far as it might, it might be occurring in plants, also we don't know this yet. But all of these people, most of them, also needed other people to help them act on their ideas, to execute them. Right. So Jobs actually sketched out his own reusable rocket on his own, but then he needed other people absolutely to make that into reality. Steve Jobs was a very inventive person, but he needed Steve Wozniak and then later Joni Ive to these people to help him fully realize the advantages of their ideas. Some people worked really mostly alone though. Albert Einstein mostly worked alone. Nikola Tesla mostly worked alone. E uh, Marie Curie mostly worked with Pierre Curie until mm. he died and then mostly alone. So, so. Some people are, some people are just executors though. And, yeah. and it may be that the organization of the future has, has a flexible structure that allows you to yeah. be different types of people. And some innovations require a lot of collaboration to execute and some don't. Right, like Benjamin Franklin, he was inventing a lot of, he invented some technological innovations, but also a lot of social innovations, like volunteer fire departments and street sweeping systems and a university and a library. All of those required a lot of cooperation of other people to make them happen. And so of the innovators I studied, he was the one who's the most charismatic and persuasive, and he had to be to make his innovations possible. And by contrast, like Marie Curie, she was not charismatic at all like dressed in black every day, didn't really talk to people, but she held up radium and it glowed, right? She didn't need anyone right. to agree with her. It was just obvious that she had discovered something really important. So this, this sense of isolation that often these um, geniuses and innovators have, it, it, it's, it's more than just a, being uncomfortable with people. It, it, it actually gives them a kind of a non-conformity of thought. Yeah, it makes them unconventional and it makes it frees them. I think that the, the number one thing it does is it releases them from a set of rules and constraints. Hmm. So, you know, when you when people have told Dean Kamen, you know, what he wanted to do was impossible, he's like, impossible for you. Like, he just doesn't believe the rules apply to him. Steve Jobs didn't believe the rules applied to him to such an extent that he didn't even put a license plate on his car. You know, he, he really thought those rules, those are for other people. And that sounds obnoxious, and it can be obnoxious. But, you know, think about what Einstein did in physics. 
because Einstein wasn't accepted in academia and was not initially given an academic post and was not respected, he was able to basically ignore a lot of Newtonian conceptions that had held everybody else back. And he just came out and said, you know what, there's no ether. There's no absolute time. And he completely revolutionized physics. And his first papers, you know, at first people didn't respond to them. They thought, oh my God, this, who is this person? What does he think he's doing? He's, how could he say such a thing? How could he show so little respect for the people who've gone before him? And, and he's not even part of our community. But then as soon as one of his principles was proven in an eclipse, then all those barriers came down and they knew he was right. When, when you see the childhood of you know, Einstein, as, 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 as well as some of the other people you, you spoke about, like the, the founders of Google, and uh, you see some kind of educational experience that encourages them to be more questioning, less rote learning, whether it's Montessori type education or Einstein had that unique experience when he was rejected from the Zurich Polytechnic. Yeah, yeah. well often what you see too though is that they've rejected uh, traditional traditional teaching. education. Sometimes they um, they just didn't like it, you know, or they didn't fit in. You know, it's not that they don't like learning, they're autodidacts. They so. love learning, they, right. they, love edu- they love to study, they read books and, and study and teach themselves, but, but they want to study at their rate and their pace and the direction that, that they choose. They don't want to adhere to somebody else's standardized curriculum. Mm. And a lot of them didn't have very much formal education. So like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Edison had almost no education at all. Marie Curie had a lot of education, but she noted that at the Sorbonne, it wasn't a very formal standardized process. You showed up and you crafted your own course of study and you pursued it on your own. And so that really worked. This ultimately is probably going to be the most important thing we have to to think about which is education yeah. because you know as we were talking about earlier in a time when machines will be able to make more decisions for us and we'll be relying on them more and more uh, to do many of our tasks we need to raise a new generation that is more creative more original yeah. um, you know who are bigger thinkers yeah what, what kind of intervention do you think we need to make in the way we teach kids you know um, I spent a lot of time thinking about that because I'm a professor and uh, one of the things that you observe is, first of all, students are really heterogeneous. They don't always realize they're heterogeneous. Sometimes they think every other student is just like them, but they are very, very different. Right? Some of them want a lot of structure. Some of them want no structure. Some of them want long chunks of time. Other ones want short little bursts. Uh, some of them want a free-flowing conversation. Other, other ones want a lecture. So they're very, very heterogeneous. And the, the challenge is, is that it, there's sort of two major challenges. The first one is scale. So it's not very efficient to have one professor, one student, or even one professor, four students. My classrooms usually have 65 students in them. So I'm trying to find one way to teach to 65 students simultaneously, (laughs) and the students are heterogeneous. So the scaling and efficiency aspect is one part of the problem, and the other problem is accountability. And by that I mean I could come up with a way of teaching that was excellent for Elon Musk or for, you know, let's say 10% of my class but it might fail other parts of, the, of this, it might not meet the needs of other students. So, I mean, I think this is something so worth working on right now, I don't have the <laughs> answers, but finding ways to enable students to opt in to the kind of learning structure and patterns that they want. And that it's self-directed in the way that the geniuses do. For those who want self-direction or who will be good at it. Right. But then you also will have to be able to find a way to note the people for whom that won't work. Some people 
aren't self-directed, uh, maybe they might opt into self-direction if they think that means they can just go have donuts and coffee while the other people are studying, <laughs> right? So you have to find something that's going to work for everybody, even the people who need you to provide more direction. Well, Melissa, it was wonderful talking to you. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Your book's you terrific. Everyone should read it. And uh, it's been great to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.